Hello, Hungarian horntails and Welsh greens. Welcome to the Time Turner, Harry Potter in depth. Per usual, we're doing an in-depth analysis of what happened in each set of chapters and looking for ties to the endgame, foreshadowing, anything special we want to talk about, and hot takes or big questions we have. Today, we're going over chapters 19 through 21 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. But first, Ken needs to channel his inner Professor Bins and remind ourselves what happened in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire chapters 16 through 18. Last time, we talked about how we get a little more acquainted with the students from Dumbstring and Bobatten. Ron is fawning over both Crumb and Fleur. Dumbledore unveils the Goblet of Fire, and the twins begin exploring ways to get over the age line. We get some early signs of bad blood between Karkaroff and Moody. Crumb, Fleur, and Cedric are announced as champions, but then Harry's name is called as well. The other contestants don't seem to really get what's going on when Harry shows up as a fourth champion. Dumbledore calmly handles the situation, and Moody suggests that a dark wizard might have entered Harry's name into the tournament. Harry returns to the common room and finds that Ron doesn't believe him that someone else entered his name. Rita, during a photo shoot, focuses all her attention on Harry, and Harry and Sirius make plans to talk about everything that's been happening. It's time. Let's grab our firebolts, dodge our bludgers, as we work through who scored and who fell off their broom in chapters 19 through 21 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Harry is anxious about the upcoming first task, but is excited to see Sirius and talk to him about everything that's been going on. Hermione and Harry were coming up with a way to have Harry talk to Sirius without interruptions. They were ready for some dung bombs if it came to that. But everything else sort of sucks for Harry, since the piece on the Triwizard Tournament that Rita Skeeter wrote, the intense focus on Harry, the disrespect shown to the other champions, Harry is just miserable over it. People are making his life a living hell. And just important to know, because it'll keep coming back, Rita also makes note in the article that Harry has found love, but with Hermione for Harry. He's really struggling. And meanwhile, we get a Harry and Cho interaction, but it's in the midst of everyone giving Harry all this crap about the article, and he snaps at Cho Chang, not realizing who she was. In this moment, it just sort of feels like another thing that went wrong for Harry in a long list of things that are going wrong for Harry. I also really like that this happens right after we get Rita's fake article about Harry being in love with Hermione. Like, at the same time, everyone at the school is thinking Harry has this crush on Hermione. Harry has a bad interaction with the person he actually has a crush on. Right. Who doesn't seem to be, you know, freaking out that Harry supposedly has a crush on Hermione. She's also, you know, acting her normal way to him. So maybe she doesn't believe the story. Who knows? Right. And I don't think we're going to talk about this in this episode. Maybe we'll talk about this in another one. But I cannot read this without this, like, intense irritation with the author that Cho Chang is called Cho Chang. Like, we'll talk about this at some point. But, like, come on. Seriously. Could have worked a little bit harder on that one. Right. Hermione is obviously also getting crap because she was in the article as Harry's love interest, but she's handling that with grace. And I'll quote from the book, Harry was full of admiration for the way she was handling the situation. 
Ron and Harry are still fighting, or more accurately, they're not speaking. So they're not actively fighting, but they're not speaking either. It's very uncomfortable. You gotta love the way it brings you back to, like, being 14, and it's like you're not talking with your friends, or your other friend is going between you and trying to, you know, bridge the gap. It's the perfect way to remind everyone that these are still kids. This is how you act as kids. Yeah. These are petty teenagers. They have no idea how to interact. And I don't think we wrote this down to talk about this later. Maybe we should have. Harry has had no friends his entire life. He has been the punching bag for Dudley for 11 years and met his first friend, who is Ron, at 11 years old. He doesn't know how to be a friend, much less fight with a friend. So all of this is uncharted territory for Harry. Ron at least had, I'm sure he had some childhood friends. He had all those siblings to fight with. Ron is just going to be better tactically at dealing with a fight than Harry is. We're hearing about it in the book from the narrative of how crushing this is to Harry. But when you look back at his childhood, this has to be beyond crushing. This has to be traumatic for him. Yeah, this is, I think, the first friend fight he really has. And with that in mind, he actually handles it pretty well like considering he's never done this before like yeah you know he's being petty he's being a you know teenager but he's not acting much worse than you'd expect of any 14 year old to act you got to give him a lot of credit for that yeah it's not so bad and we we got a primer for fighting in the last book when hermione and ron were fighting and poor harry just had no idea what to do about he was so confused (laughs) and i think that that's kind of funny but just as a reminder when harry's dealing with these what we consider like kind of normal teenager things harry is a very strange person with a very strange childhood and he does handle it like a normal teenager which maybe discounts my kind of theory on how traumatic this must be for harry Harry noticed Victor Crumb has been hanging around library a lot, which Hermione says annoys her because of his gaggle of girls that are following him around. But all of this is sort of in the back of Harry's head because in the front of Harry's head is the first task, which is fast approaching and he still doesn't know what to do. But life is continuing to go on. For example, it's time for Hogsmeade. So there is some conversation with Harry and Hermione about like how they're going to do this because Ron's not talking to Harry. And then there was a little bit of like blushing because Harry asked Hermione if she was going with Ron, which I think is one of our earlier, not the earliest, but one of our earlier signs of something going on there. And they eventually compromise that Hermione and Harry are going to go, but Harry's going to wear his invisibility cloak, which Hermione just grumbles about the entire time, like beginning to end. She is not pleased with that. We do a lot of people watching in Hogsmeade. We talk about S-P-E-W or spew and uh harry takes a moment to notice that cho isn't wearing a support cedric diggory bin signs don't get much clearer than that right (laughs) he notices that even though all he can think about is the first task but something interesting does happen in hogsmeade professor moody spots harry which is interesting because harry's wearing an invisibility cloak so no one should be spotting harry but we learn that mad eyes eye can see through invisibility cloaks which is a very interesting interesting and important Deathly Hallows comment that I hope we remember to get to when we start learning about the Deathly Hallows, but I will wait for that. 
Moody is also with Hagrid, and Hagrid, in his very subtle way, as always, <laughs> tells Harry to meet him at midnight which there wasn't like a lot of room for feedback there. So Harry didn't get a chance to be like, um, busy or I had to meet with Sirius or uh, why. But Harry and Hagrid had this long-standing trust, this love. I don't think Harry's really going to question if Hagrid has, you know, bad intentions. Sometimes Hagrid's a little silly or doesn't really think through the consequences. So Harry and Hermione talk a little bit about how is this going to work because Harry is supposed to meet Sirius and they're concerned that whatever he's doing with Hagrid is going to make him late for Sirius. All that conversation led to virtually nothing because in the end, Harry goes down with his invisibility cloak to meet Hagrid at midnight. And at first it is very strange because it appears that Hagrid is going on a date and Harry is like, what am I doing here? This is so weird. So it's funny. We were just talking about how like Harry hasn't had a normal life or normal childhood. But, you know, one thing he has learned is it's not normal for an adult to take a 14 year old on their date with another adult. And it's funny because I wasn't even thinking about the kid aspect to it. I was just like, no one wants to be a third wheel. And I don't think Harry was like thinking too much. I think it was just all like, this is weird. This is weird. What is this? Here's the question though, Alyssa, if you had to be a third wheel, would you rather be under the invisibility cloak like Harry is or like visible? Visible. Okay. I, th I think so as well, but Visible like... because then they can sense your awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> you can make those faces. You're like, uh, guys, I'm right here. I'm right here. I know that it's like a faux pas in, when in Deathly Hollows, but I'm like not very interested in the invisibility cloak. Really? I just, there are a lot of things I think about and I really don't go around thinking, oh, I wish I was invisible. In my day-to-day -day life, maybe if I was Harry Potter, it'd be more important. It sounds like he's getting a lot of use out of it. It's just in my life. You don't you don't sneak out. You don't sneak around, sneak out very often. I will say, though, I'm still in a remote environment. Both my husband and I are home, working from home. And I guess I could really use an invisibility cloak for every time I want to walk to the fridge and get things and take them and not have him spot me eating all day. That would be nice. Okay, that's fair. But that's about it. That might be the most exciting part of my day, but the day we're living in Harry Potter world right now is crazy because Harry is going on this quasi-date with Hagrid and Madame Maxine, which is, I guess, like, we should have seen that coming. That becomes just a blip on the radar for Harry as he realizes there are dragons at Hogwarts. Dragons? Yeah, and, and like... I had like four bullet points of like, oh my God, it's dragons. OMG, dragons, WTF, dragons. There are real live dragons there. And I think Harry has not seen a fully grown dragon. We know he saw a baby one. These things are scary looking, really scary looking. Yeah. So he sees a bunch of them and he sees Charlie Weasley, who conveniently explains everything to Hagrid. <laughs> so we know what's going on. Um, Charlie explains how there are different dragon breeds. And he's talking in particular about this Hungarian horntail, which is the most vicious one. If you didn't get a sense from the name, Horn Tail, the tail is very dangerous. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sound good. And they're having trouble subduing the dragon. And I think those of us who kind of live in a unlucky Murphy's Law type of life, the way I feel like I do, you know immediately when you read this line, you're like, oh, Harry's going to have to deal with the Hungarian Horn Tail because of course he gets the worst one. I mean, there's no other option there. I'd also like to point out that I did a study abroad program in undergrad in Hungary, 
and I searched the entire country for some Hungarian horn tails. Unfortunately, I uh, couldn't find any, or fortunately, because that wouldn't have ended well for me. The closest I came was when I very poorly photoshopped an image of a Hungarian horntail on the parliament building and sent it to Alyssa, and I thought I was very funny. It was very bad, but I thought I was hysterical. Let's see if we can drag that one out for the social media. Let's not. <laughs> Let's not. That was embarrassing. A, that was a bad Photoshop job. Yeah. I thought I was very clever, though. No, you're not very good at Photoshop. No, I'm not. That's okay, though. You're good at other things. Thank you. Like Harry Potter podcasts. Harry is processing what he just saw. Funny, this is very relatable. He's trying to decide, is he happy he knows about the dragons? Or is it just like a thousand times worse because it's dragons? But just as he's starting to process this, he runs into Karkaroff, which is confusing. And then he realizes very quickly now Victor Crumb and Fleur Delacour are both going to know about the dragons because obviously Madame Maxine was there. And I don't think we're talking about this later, but like, let's take a second. Hagrid took the competition to see the freaking dragons, like, traitor. Charlie calls him out for that, but he kind of gets a pass because, like, Hagrid doesn't get that many love interests. So, like, we're like, oh, but it's cute that, like, he tried to, like, go on a date, but not cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely not a Slytherin because my people would never do something like that. Never, never, never. Harry does get back to meet Sirius, who is doing that flu head in the fire thing. And Harry is so relieved to see Sirius. And it's a little funny, but mostly sad. Sirius asks Harry something like, how are you doing? And Harry was about to reply, fine. And he couldn't get that word out. He just blurts out everything. All of his concerns, all of his fear, everything going on is probably very therapeutic for Harry to get this all out. And Sirius has a very thoughtful answer. And he starts with, Dragon's easy. We'll deal with the dragon in a minute. That's the least of your concerns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like, Harry's like, I don't know that's the least of my concerns. <laughs> Seems like a big deal. I have to fight it, but okay. Sirius warns Harry about Karkaroff being a Death Eater. Sirius is also concerned about Moody's attack, the ones with the dustbins that Arthur Weasley had to go fix, if we all remember that from earlier in the book. Sirius makes the comment that, yeah, Mad-Eye Moody has been kind of getting a little paranoid with age, but he was the best horror that the Ministry's ever seen. Just because he's paranoid doesn't mean he doesn't know how to spot an attack. And he suspects someone did try to stop him from getting to Hogwarts. Sirius is kind of connecting all the dots and saying there's a lot of strange things going on. And he includes Bertha Jorkins, who is a missing ministry employee who we've we've mentioned a few times. And just as Sirius was cut off as he was going to tell Harry how to defeat the dragon, Ron shows up. And Ron makes kind of a nasty comment. Harry throws one of the badges at him, the this, this support Cedric Diggory badge. And that badge hits Ron in the forehead. And Harry says, and I'm going to quote, you might even have a scar now, if you're lucky. That's what you want, isn't it? Yikes. Whew, wow. That cuts. Harsh. Harry's upset. Chapter 20. Harry and Hermione try to figure out a way to fight a dragon, but they're not having much luck. Most of the books they can find are about how to care for a dragon or feed a dragon, things that someone like Hagrid would want, but nothing's really telling them how to fight a dragon. Harry, on his way to class, sees Cedric and realizes that Cedric is the only quad wizard champion who doesn't know about the dragon. 
So he engineers a way to get Cedric separated from his friends and warns Diggory that the first task is dragons and he's going to have to get past one. Cedric is uh, hesitant to believe Harry, but eventually does and goes on his way when Mad-Eye Moody catches them. Moody takes Harry to his office and it is a treasure trove of foreshadowing and hints. We see the secrecy sensor which vibrates to detect concealments and lies, but Moody blames this on students always lying about homework and not him concealing his identity and lying about who he is. Moody mentions he had a sneak scope that kept going off, but he had to turn it off because there were so many people lying about homework and deceiving and whatnot. Again, he's doing all the lying and deceiving. And he mentions his faux mirror and the trunk, which we later find out is where the real Moody is being kept and having like hair plucked out for polyjuice potion and the like. Moody helps Harry realize that what he needs to fight the dragon is a simple way to succeed. And what Harry kind of comes to with Moody's pushing is that he needs his broom. He needs to find a way to fly. Yeah, comes to with Moody's pushing. I mean, come on. Could the guy have handed it to Well, I, I might have, you know, taken some of the edges off to of To get what you need. Got it? Yeah, what idiot. are you good at? Oh, you're good at flying? What do you need to fly, you idiot? Not the most subtle way of helping somebody. But Harry finally puts two and two together and realizes, hey, this summoning charm that, you know, I've been struggling with this year, that's perfect. That's what I need. So he gets Hermione to help him, and after practicing pretty much nonstop, Harry finally seems to be getting the handle of the summoning charm. McGonagall walks Harry to the first task and seems quite worried about him. She certainly knows what he's about to face and doesn't know that he has a plan in place already, and understandably is quite concerned about 14-year-old Harry's chances to defeat a fully grown dragon. Bagman is there and tells the champions that they have to collect an egg, doesn't say anymore, and has each champion pick a miniature dragon out of a bag. The dragons are miniature versions of the real ones they'll be facing. So when you pick the Welsh Green Dragon out of the bag, that means you're going to face the Welsh Green Dragon in the actual trial. Harry is correct in his assumption that Fleur and Crumb both, had, both were told what to expect, and knew that they would be facing dragons, which, you know, helps make him and the reader feel better about the fact that he told Cedric as well, that everyone's kind of coming in on an equal playing field. Harry, too, as Alyssa suggested, no one's surprise, gets the Hungarian horntail. Bagman pulls Harry aside and offers to give him some pointers and some advice on what to do, but Harry says no, he's, he's got a plan, he's got it figured out. The reader then sits there with Harry, listening to the commentary as the other competitors go. And this must be, like, so nerve-wracking. I've competed in sports, you know, I've said tests where you're sitting there waiting for your turn to go and the like. And sitting there having to hear, like, announcers hear that someone else is going, hear the oohs, the ahs, the cheers, and have no idea what's happening would drive me insane. Like, nerves of steel for Harry not to, like, just pass out on the spot. 
I think it's also a lot like I remember my old theater days and I feel like it's a lot like that. Like you're waiting for your time to go on stage, but you can't see the stage. So you're kind of picturing it and hearing things and you're not sure and you're just getting nervous. But the problem with both of our examples here is that Harry might die, you know, when he goes. So it's not just like a performance anxiety type of situation. It's like life or death. I mean, he's a 14 year old that's going to try to beat a dragon. So... I think the concept is very relatable to all of us, but the stakes are much higher. Yes, we can understand it at a base level, but none of us have ever had to face a fully grown dragon whose tail is as vicious and deadly as, you know, the rest of it. I mean, he's being trained really well to defeat Voldemort. Yeah, getting a lot of good stuff in. So when Harry is up, he enters the arena and successfully summons his broomstick potentially more on that later. I have some thoughts. And Harry, you know, after trying a couple maneuvers on his broom, is eventually able to get the dragon to move far enough away from the eggs so he can slip by and grab the egg and succeed. He does get hit with some fire at one point, so maybe some points off for that. You know, we'll talk about that. But he gets the egg. He doesn't die, so... You know, we're all happy. Go, Harry. (laughs) Round of applause. Afterwards, Ron and Hermione come up to Harry, and Ron and Harry make up. Ron's like, hey, you know, you almost got killed there. And seeing you almost die made me realize that you wouldn't have signed up for this, which is true, except that he already knew that fact. So, like, uh, I get that, like, this is just him realizing it, but a little weak in my opinion. Super weak. I don't need to go into that. No, super weak. And I think you're sort of underselling here a little bit. The feeling as a reader that you get when Harry does his Accio and the firebolt shows up and he jumps on it and he's succeeding and then he gets it and then you hear the cheer and then you hear Ron with his like quasi-apology type of thing. Super weak. He should have came to that earlier. But it's sort of another like gives you chills moment where with Harry really, and we've been talking about this in this episode, hit after hit after hit. Like it just feels like everything blows all the time. And in this chapter, you're really getting um, some feel-goods, which we could use. No, absolutely. You're right. I certainly do not want to undersell the victories, emotional and physical, that are going on here. It is a great moment, and both Harry and the reader are thrilled that Harry and Ron are making up. I've said this before. I'm not the biggest Ron fan. I think he gets a little bit of a better rap than he deserves. I think he's not as good a friend as he's made out to be. So to me, this just kind of helps confirm my bias against him, but I don't need to spend more time on that today because Harry completed the first task. He survived. This is great. This is a happy chapter at the end of the day, so we should keep it happy. Yeah, happy chapter, and maybe that's something we should have done from the beginning is like label chapters (laughs) happy or neutral or sad, because that would have been very interesting at the end to keep track of that, but we're way too far in. So too late. Never mind. So Ron recaps to Harry how everyone else did, something we'll talk on a little bit later, so I won't do it now. And then we get the scores. Bagman gives Harry a 10, despite the fact that he did get a little hurt. His broomstick did catch on fire. Harry's kind of like, huh, that doesn't make sense. Ron, you know, really laying it on thick that he's in Harry's corner is like, eh, you did great. Don't worry about it. 
Ampon rereads, this becomes just another sign that something's going on with Bagman and that he's going extremely out of his way, perhaps completely unethically, to help Harry. Yes, super suspicious, right? Very suspicious. But the other thing, though, is, and I think this played a role in my thought process when I was reading it for the first time, Harry is the, the most famous person in the wizarding community, so it's not that surprising that a fellow Brit gives him some super high score. He's the, you know, it's famous. And not just a fellow Brit, a fellow star Quidditch player. Bagman played for England. He was a Quidditch star, so he's going to give extra style points to someone who got on a broomstick and did all this, especially because, as Ron points out, Crumb didn't even think of getting on a broomstick. The best flyer in the world didn't even consider doing what Harry did, and Harry showed everyone that he's a very good flyer. There's a lot of style points there, and right. not Harry's intention, but probably certainly some uh, psychological attacks on Crumb as well. So we obviously know now in hindsight yeah, something was off with Bagman. It wasn't that he was evil. It wasn't he was trying to kill Harry. But this particular piece is explainable. You can say, well, you know, as we said, there are reasons. Right. But Bagman's suspiciously high score is even out by the fact that Karkaroff gives Harry a four. Ron starts screaming at him because he gave Crumb a 10, even though Crumb didn't have a perfect run. So this is clearly, you know, some bias on Karkaroff's part. But Harry ends the first test tied in first with Victor Crumb. The chapter ends with Bagman telling the students that the key to the second task is inside the egg that they just recovered. Check in, chew up, tune out. OK Drugs Peach Eatables are the perfectly calming remedy for those seeking a gentle easing of worry. OK Drugs gummies help to shift perspectives, elevate experiences, and find clarity in crazy. Peach Eatables are vegan, THC-free, made with broad-spectrum CBD to help relax, and L-theanine to help you stay focused. Go to okdrugs.co to order your feel-good fix and use the promo code TIMETURNER to get 10% off today. I love the OK Drugs Peach Eatables. They taste amazing and help keep things cool, calm, and collected. OKDrugs.co. Remember to use the promo code TIMETURNER for 10% off. So chapter 21, which is the last chapter we're going to discuss in this episode, if we're labeling episodes good, sad, or neutral, I would definitely put this in the neutral category. So Harry unloads and shares with Ron the info that Sirius gave him, you know, about Karkaroff, other things he learned after the task was over and they're heading back to Gryffindor Tower. Lots of celebrations. The mood is definitely like post-Super Bowl type of environment. The Gryffindor Tower is just ecstatic for Harry, which is all very sweet, and I like that. And Harry's peer pressured to open up the egg with the hint in the Gryffindor Tower, which he does. And the most horrible noise, this loud and screeching and wailing filled the room. No one knows what that was. There's some speculation. It's a banshee. Neville says people are being tortured. And we'll talk about that later. Wasn't a hint. I mean, thank you very much for the hint, but no thank you. Not very helpful. At least at this moment. Did not seem to give out much wisdom. No. Not at all. The hint is subtle at this point. This is no moody telling Harry to fly. Right, right, right. This is not laid out for everyone. Challenging. So life sort of continues. We go to care of magical creatures. Hagrid is continuing the blast-ended Scrooge lesson. 
And Rita Skeeter interrupts and starts asking a lot of questions, which is just very annoying. And at this current moment, we don't really see the point. Hermione is all about Spoo again. And, you know, especially now, like in this current environment, Hermione is on the right track. She was right all along, which we say all the time. She was able to find the house elves in the kitchen. So she brings Harry and Ron to the kitchen to meet the house elves. And uh, they see Dobby, which is very exciting for Harry. And we learn that Dumbledore is paying Dobby. Not very much, (laughs) but apparently Dumbledore was willing to pay a lot and Dobby negotiated him down. Not great negotiating tactics, Dobby. (laughs) We also learn that Winky is there and Dobby has taken some sort of responsibility for Winky trying to assist Winky since she was fired from her previous job with the Crouches. Winky is devastated. This is not healthy. Winky is upset. And through this conversation, we also learn more about house elf rules. The house elves can't speak ill about their masters. They have to keep the family secrets, etc. And what we do learn that Winky says Ludo Backman is a bad wizard. I'll just add that because I don't think we're talking about this later that, you know, we've talked before about things that aren't in the movies that are in the books, particularly in this book. This scene in the kitchens with Dobby and Winky, I think, is one of the better scenes that is not included in the movie. Not only because you get a little bit more about the house elves, but Dobby's actually in the book. You know, you learn a little bit more about Dobby and Winky and, you know, it's, it's a nice character chapter for Dobby as well. And it's a shame that people who saw the movie movies and didn't read the books don't get this really help kind of helps bridge Dobby from chamber secrets to you know his appearance I think in the movies he doesn't appear again until Deathly Hollow so it definitely helps bridge the gap there right and one of the harry potter podcasts that i've listened to i I mean i finished it but i listened to it a while ago it's called potterless it's really really good and the concept is you know a grown man that has watched some of the movies but hadn't read the books and one of the things that kept coming up was that he didn't understand why everybody loved dobby so much because from his perspective he saw the second movie and dobby was so annoying right dobby was just troublemaker and then we go straight to like you know in the movies of Dobby is a savior it doesn't make a lot of sense the book fandom the obsession with Dobby and when he's read through the books you start to see that how where Dobby changes and I think this is like you're making the point a really good example even in the books of a transition between annoying Dobby to friend and knowing the meaning of friend I mean he's helping Winky who clearly needs the help that's very nice it's also a good moment for someone who I generally crap on, but for Ron, who sees Dobby more as a person as well. He, you know, offers to give Dobby clothes. And as you said, it's just one of the first big times of what we'll continue to see of Dobby being a good person, but also being helpful. He comes back later in this book. He helps Harry in Order of the Phoenix. He you know helps Harry again in Half-Blood Prince. He's continue he's constantly there for Harry. And that's something you don't get unless you read the book. So just love any chapter that has Dobby. So now, let's stir the cauldron and sip on some tea. What are our big questions or hot takes for chapters 19 through 21 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? I'll start with just a small one, but we get mentioned in these chapters of you know Rita publishing an article about the Triwizard Tournament that is all about Harry. We talked about earlier about how she lies and says that Harry has this crush on Hermione. 
What we didn't talk as much about, but also there's the fact that she tries to really make it seem like Harry's the only champion, right? Fleur and Crumb are marginalized and their names are misspelled. And Rita also does not mention Cedric. There's no mention of Cedric Diggory as a, as a Hogwarts champion. And I don't like it, but I get Rita purposefully not mentioning Cedric. Like it fits into, you know, her Harry's a star of everything bit. But she misspelled Crumb and Fleur's name. So like... Do wizarding journalists not have editors? Yeah, and it's the whole thing is very strange. Also, Victor Crumb is like the David Beckham, right, of the wizarding world. Like, you're not going to misspell his name. Like, they're very strange. Right. I agree. That's weird. Where are the editors? And like I said, I get, you know, not including Cedric and the editor might allow that because she's a sensationalist journalist and this is what she does. But spell names right. Do they not have, you know, word check? I mean, we know they don't, but still. Yeah, I think, I don't know. You can tell me if this is a hot take. I don't think it's a hot take. I think it's a take. Nothing runs well here in the Harry Potter universe from an operational standpoint, from the executive branch of the government to the court systems, to the schools, to the banks. I guess the banks run well because it's not run by humans, to the industries, commercial industries, to the newspapers, the press. I mean, what here functions well nothing i mean they're just like lucky that no one gives a crap i'm not sure i a hundred percent agree with you but certainly at least when it comes to the newspapers i'm with you that these are you think the government functions well in the harry potter world yikes i'm, I'm not saying the, the government functions well though i do think that you know examining the government only at you know this five-year period of chaos and the right and the re-rise of voldemort and stuff isn't exactly a fair way to say, oh, they didn't handle these three years well, therefore the government's bad. I don't really mean it in terms of, did you handle a crisis well? I mean it more in like, do they have a constitution? Okay. Remember, and we're talking about now, we're jumping forward to the fifth book. I'm sure I'm going to want to talk about this forever. But when Harry was brought to the courtroom for his hearing for the Dementors, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about the lack of regulation, the lack of procedural kind of operational management of these systems. I mean, the government just does whatever they want, whatever they feel like it. It's not really a matter of, did they handle the Voldemort crisis well? I think we can all objectively say no. And the school too, it's just not set up very well. And it brings me to actually one of my points, which maybe I make later, or we said we were not going to talk about, but Rita Skeeter was seen in Care of Magical Creatures asking a bunch of questions, to which I asked the question, what the hell is a reporter doing in the middle of a class? Not to mention the fact that if I recall, Hagrid even says to her, didn't Dumbledore say you're not allowed here anymore? And she's like, oh, well, uh, ooh, what are those, you know, things on the ground? And like everyone just kind of forgets that, like, she's trespassing. Yeah, like, where's the security? Where's the protocols for the teachers? Oh, come on, this is not realistic. Not a great look. Maybe in the 90s, things were a little more chill. But even then, like, I remember the 90s and there were rules. <laughs> it was not a free-for-all. Right, very disappointing to me and this actually we've talked about this a lot this is where i feel like the world building in a song of ice and fire game of thrones is a lot stronger than the world building in harry potter yeah i mean i think that there's more i think there's just a lot more material there which helps as well it'll be nice if that material you know got published finished i've actually been um <laughs> rereading the side book that he published kind of about the history of all the kingdoms going back to 
thousands of years because that would be helpful for harry potter it would be helpful for harry potter it's also helpful for song of ice and fire and i'm rereading it and every time i reread it i'm like ooh, i forgot how great like how rich the histories of all these houses are and stuff right and you're especially into obviously history and that kind of thing but yes i just i just feel like and i, and I know from the perspective of this book right you're only getting really hairy you get some special chapters or somebody else but harry doesn't understand do they have a constitution right like he doesn't know these things but i do think just like the newspaper where we don't understand how it functions just like the court system whatever we could do better i'll say this and then maybe it's time to move on but we've talked before about what classes they offer and more importantly what classes they don't offer where's their government class uh civics right civics political science comparative government class like that's what they need yeah yeah they do need that agreed completely so i'll take that though to move on past the workings of the government and one of the things I mentioned earlier I want to kind of come back to quickly was that Harry successfully summons his broom to him during this challenge. And when Harry's practicing and he finally gets summoning charm down well, he's concerned because it's going to be harder, he says, during the task than when he's making a dictionary zoom across an enclosed room. In her mind, he's like, oh, no, it doesn't matter. You know, as long as you have the theory down, you know, you'll be fine. I call bullshit. I think there's a huge difference between me pointing at something across a small room versus him getting a broomstick from some other part of the castle that he can't see and is a not clear distance away and getting that to perfectly fly to him. I think there's a huge difference and I, I don't buy the jump that he takes here. Well, it's Hermione's jump, but I don't agree with you, actually. I think you're right in the sense that it's harder to do, but I think it's only harder to do because of the lack of confidence. When you see something right there, when you're focusing right on it, you're going to perform the spell better. I think the way the magic works, I don't think it matters. I mean, I when I read it, I don't think it's bullshit. I think that if he had the same confidence and the same way he was saying the spell with the dictionary in the room as the firebolt in another part of the castle, it should work exactly the same. I hear you. I feel like we're seen and told at numerous times about, you know, seeing what you're doing is important in the magical world. And he can't see the broomstick. Like at no other time do we have someone summoning something or doing something this far off from where they are. Like every time like they're pointing their wand where the object is, it's or they're able to see the object. This just seems a jump to me compared to the ability we're seeing at least for harry and other teenagers at any other point no i i hear you i think you're reading into it more than i did but okay happens sometimes right <laughs> so to move on a little bit one of the comments and it's not it's definitely not a hot take it's like just my thoughts i love the section in here where harry tells cedric about the dragons I feel like Harry talking to Cedric about this is just very indicative of Harry's personality, what we're going to see from Harry for other books to come. And this particular line I really like, Cedric's like, why are you telling me this? And Harry says, or Harry thinks, Harry looked at him in disbelief. He was sure Cedric wouldn't have asked that if he had seen the dragons himself. And I think that that's, you can read that on its face and be like, oh, it was so horrifying that Harry did something nice for an opponent. And I think we're going to see, we've seen and we're going to see time and time again, Harry didn't even think about this. Harry wasn't like, should I, should I not? It was like, hopefully we've all been in scenarios where you do something nice for someone and someone's like, why'd you do that? And you're like, well, what do you mean? Why did I die? 
I did that because it was the right thing to do. And Harry lives by his own rules of what is the right thing to do to his detriment a lot of the times. But a lot of people complain about Harry Potter, that he's an overrated character. And, and I am totally not on that train. I think Harry Potter is a great character. And I think this is an example of the type of character that Harry is shaping up to be. No, I, I think you're 100% right. And it says a lot about Harry that he just instinctively realizes Cedric needs to know as well. And I think, you know, it's probably aided by the fact that Cedric has, I think I'm willing to say, a reputation for being a fair player. You know, when Cedric won the Quidditch match the year before, every indication we get is that he tried to say, no, we should replay the match. That wasn't a fair way to end. It's not Harry's fault that... He fell off his broom because a Dementor attacked. They end up saying, no, you Hufflepuff still won. But Cedric it isn't one to, you know, bend the rules or to use any advantage he has. He went out of his way to say, don't give me the win. Let's play fairly. And I think that also plays into it that, you know, this is a competitor who plays fair and would want to play fair and makes it easier for Harry to instinctively say, I should play fair as well. Cedric deserves to know. I agree completely with everything you just said. I want to stick on the dragons for one more moment, talk about something that I at least kind of realized for the first time when on this reread. I don't know if maybe, Alyssa, you realized this sooner, but I kind of realized that the way each champion tackles the dragon really matches their personality. So first we have, you know, Cedric goes first, and he, you know, is someone who is not used to to attention. He's not used to the spotlight. He's in Hufflepuff. He's not generally the most outgoing, the most well-known, the center of attention. And he tries to succeed by getting the dragon to focus on something else. He transfigures a rock into a dog and tries to get the dragon to focus away from him, much like how he generally is not, you know, the center of attention and the focus. Fleur, I believe, goes second. And Fleur part Vila, but generally, you know, is very attractive and people are very easily charmed by her, tries to charm the dragon into a trance, much like people around Vila's are kind of charmed into a trance. He's trying to lull her opponent into, you know, a state of relaxedness and affection so that she can get around the dragon. And then Crumb, who is, you know, a star Quidditch player, caught the snitch because he could, even though it meant his team loss, went for a, a brutal, direct, forceful attack straight at the dragon's eye. This is, you know, a strong enemy just saying, I'm going straight at you and I'm going to just try to get this done with quickly. And I think, you know, it as I started this, it speaks a lot to who they are. Each person tackled this task very much like they are as a person. And that was something I never realized before, but I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it's something I didn't think of at all until you you know wrote this all down. And I think you make really excellent points. It's really, really cool. But did you talk about Harry? I didn't because we already talked about Harry. But if we're going to include Harry in that as well, I guess I'd say it's Harry literally facing danger in the face. You know, he's fighting the dragon at what should be a dragon's best, you know, in the air and flying around and swerving. And that's what a dragon should be at the top of its game. So he's, you know, taking the fight to the dragon's strength and showing he's not going to back down from the dragon's strengths. He can beat his opponents at their own game. 
Yeah, I think what we see in the way he thinks during his flight, he thinks like his opponent. And in some respects, he is his opponent, right? He is in the air flying around. And to me, it's very subtle, but it is a, it's a Voldemort metaphor. You know, he is Voldemort, Voldemort is him, then that connection. In some respects, that's a lot like the dragon where Harry is acting like the dragon, right? He's flying around, going over the head. And purposefully, the way he's flying, he's trying to get the dragon to go up. And then he thinks if he goes up, just do this right speed. Don't go too slow. Don't go too fast. He's doing a really good job at anticipating the enemy's next action. And what we see in book seven is that's the entire story here is understanding his connection to similarities with Voldemort and trying to anticipate the actions and beat him at his own game. And I think really cool that you brought this up and thinking about this in a way we haven't thought of before. I agree. I think that was uh, really nicely said. Something sad that we both thought about when we read this chapter was that when the, when the screaming egg was released in Gryffindor Tower, everyone's trying to guess what it was. And Neville thought it was someone being tortured. And George called him a prat for thinking of that. And he was dismissed. But it's really sad that Neville came to that conclusion because obviously that's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about torture and people screaming. And in hindsight, not great look for George that, oh, you're a prat for thinking it could be someone tortured. It could have been. I don't know that he was so far off. And I just think it's worth noting, you know, we talk a lot about, and I talk a lot about Harry's childhood and Harry's demons and how he approaches life knowing what he's been through. But Neville a lot of similarities and I feel really bad for Neville in this moment that he can't even enjoy what everyone else is enjoying because he's so tormented by his parents torture yeah it's, it's this really sad moment you know upon second third hundredth read you you know obviously connect this to Neville's parents and how you know and that's why he acts the way he does and as you said it's not a great look for George that he dismisses this but you know in George's defense as well no one else knows you know it will be later this book when harry finds out about neville's parents and it won't be until next book when the rest of the gang finds out but it is this very sad moment for neville someone who as we find out in half blood prince very easily could have been harry like their lives could have been reversed so it's this sad moment but it's also this nice small reminder from the author that there's something about neville and torture Right, we get his reaction to the Cruciatus curse in Moody's first class. We get him bringing it back up here. It's this subtle way of reminding us that there's something to keep an eye on, something more going on here that we don't find out about until later in this book. So it's also, I think, a nice way to kind of keep your mind primed for that reveal later on. Absolutely. I think you're totally right. So I think we'll end this with a, just a small one, which is I seem to always be having this knack to wanting to remind everyone that despite the fact that everyone makes fun of her, Professor Shawani's pretty good at her job. And she's once again correct about predicting that death's approaching. She's, you know, talking about how death is circling the castle and getting ever closer. And Harry's treating this as once again, Shawani's saying he's going to die and being much more open in his contempt about it. But again, she's right. Just it wasn't about Harry. It was about Cedric. And I always point these out because she doesn't get enough love for her correct takes. But I'm starting to realize that I didn't realize I was such a Trelawney stan, but I guess I am. Yeah, you are. This is now <laughs> becoming a thing. But you make a good point. Can't disagree with that logic. She deserves credit for what she does. 
So that concludes this episode of where we covered Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire chapters 19 through 21. And as always, please review and subscribe and send us feedback on any of the social media outlets. It's at Time Turner Pod. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you again to Julia Christian, our rock star editor who makes us come to life and sound good. Thank you, Julia. Thank you to all of our listeners. We appreciate you guys joining us on this journey. And be sure to load your pockets with cream cakes and pies on your way out.